If you would, turn with me to Daniel chapter 6. Daniel chapter 6. The prophet Daniel, snug in there with Ezekiel and the rest of the major prophets of the Old Testament. And uh, if, you're, if you're new with us here today or just uh, a guest with us and haven't been in a while, we've been in a sermon series on Daniel. And so we've actually been parked in Daniel now for seven weeks. This will be the seventh week. And we're on chapter six uh, today. And if you know much about the book of Daniel, chapter six is really a transitional chapter. So let's, uh, let's read from Daniel six. We're going to pick up, as we unfortunately have to do, about midway through. Uh, we can't watch the whole episode this morning. Uh, but instead, we're going to pick up about halfway through. Also, if you'll thumb in your Bible and just sort of Hang tight with Matthew 28. We're also going to be there. You can see that in your bulletin there with the scripture reading from Matthew 28. But notice this reading from Daniel 6 this morning. This is the word of God. Then the king commanded, and Daniel was brought and cast into the den of lions. The king declared to Daniel, May your God, whom you serve continually, deliver you. And a stone was brought and laid on the mouth of the den, and the king sealed it with his own signet and with the signet of his lords, that nothing might be changed concerning Daniel. Then the king went to his palace and spent the night fasting. No diversions were brought to him, and sleep fled from him. Then at break of day, the king arose and went in haste, to the den of lions. As he came near to the den where Daniel was, he cried out in a tone of anguish. The king declared to Daniel, O Daniel, servant of the living God, has your God, whom you serve continually, been able to deliver you from the lions? Then Daniel said to the king, O king, live forever. My God sent his angel and shut the lions' mouths, and they have not harmed me, because I was found blameless before him, and also before you, O king. I have done no harm. Then the king was exceedingly glad, and commanded that Daniel be taken up out of the den. So Daniel was taken up out of the den, and no kind of harm was found on him, because he had trusted in his God. Now, after the Sabbath, toward the dawn of the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to see the tomb. And behold, there was a great earthquake, for an angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled back the stone and sat on it. His appearance was like lightning, and his clothing white as snow. And for fear of him, the guards trembled and became like dead men. But the angel said to the woman, to the women, Do not be afraid, for I know that you seek Jesus who was crucified. He is not here, for he has risen as he said. Come, see the place where he lay. Then go quickly and tell his disciples that he has risen from the dead, and behold, he is going before you to Galilee. There you will see him. See, I have told you. 
So they departed quickly from the tomb with fear and great joy and ran to tell his disciples. And behold, Jesus met them and said, Greetings. And they came up and took hold of his feet and worshipped him. Then Jesus said to them, Do not be afraid. Go and tell my brothers to go to Galilee and there they will see me. Let us pray. Jesus, would you help us to see you today with the eye of faith? We pray in your most holy name. Amen. Well, we come to the mid-season finale. You see, as I've been saying for the past few weeks, the book of Daniel being 12 chapters is really split right down the middle with chapter 6 and 7 being the transitional episodes, one ending a series of six complete narratives, six episodes, if you will, of Daniel's life and his three friends in a foreign, exiled land. And then the latter six chapters, 7 through 12, are going to deal with apocalyptic, futuristic material. And so we come to the If you watch television shows at all, you know what a mid-season finale is. And this is really the mid-season finale. You know something big is going to happen here. You know they've got to wrap some things up here. You don't exactly know how. And and I felt like that coming to Daniel chapter 6. And so you're probably thinking, I don't know that I want to do the difficult work of thinking back all those chapters and trying to put all of that together and the history and trying to close this whole thing out. I just don't know. I want to be that involved. It's Easter after all. I've been up really early and I've been at church a long time. (laughs) Uh, And so uh, you say, anyways, what does Daniel 6 have to do with the resurrection anyway? Well, I'm actually glad you asked. I was prepared for that question. Thanks for asking. Don't worry this morning, uh, I've taken great pains to whittle this down uh, to the core, almost as if we were preparing a meal, and you don't share all the pots and the pans and the dirty dishes with the guest, but rather you just simply bring out the food. So I'm going to try my best to bring out the meat in Daniel 6 and connect it to what happens to Jesus on this blessed morning. Uh, Comedian George Burns says, The secret of a good sermon is to have a good beginning and a good ending and then to have the two as close together as possible. I think that will probably be my only amen from some of you today. Uh, You don't want to encourage it. But, uh, But nonetheless, Daniel paints this wonderful picture of God throughout his book in these six episodes. And they're meant to be for us as they were for the original exiles, as they were for later generations, as they were for Daniel and Jesus himself. They were meant to be encouraging words. Words to live by. Scenes that were seared in our mind. And quite frankly, Daniel has a lot of these. Some would say these are like fairy tales. Being thrown in a den of lions and not being eaten. Being thrown in a fiery furnace and not being burned. 
That's a fairy tale. Now, grammatically, I would just simply say, and literature-wise, I would say, well, a fairy tale doesn't begin like any of these episodes begin. You know how a fairy tale begins, right? Once upon a time. Daniel doesn't begin any of his episodes in that way. And it is treated as if it is as historical as the day is long because we're actually mentioned names that we cannot verify in history. But, nonetheless, Christians have been scoffed at and scalded for believing fairy tales, for really believing in someone that we can't see after all. And it reminds me of a kindergarten teacher walking around observing her classroom of children while they were drawing pictures. You've seen kids doing that before. And as she got to one little girl who was working diligently, she asked what the drawing was. The girl replied, I'm drawing God. The teacher paused and said, but no one knows what God looks like. Without ever looking up, she replied, they will in a minute. <laughs> and sometimes we, uh, we wonder what God looks like. And I pray, my prayer has been for days now, that in a minute you'll see him. That in just a minute, not from a drawing that I make, but from the risen Lord himself being present with us, you will know what he looks like. Because he is risen, he has been seen, and this is no fairy tale, but this is the tale. This is the story that defines all tales, all stories. You see, he was seen. He did live. And no one denies that. And he was seen by the women first, then the disciples, then many disciples and followers, and also Paul. And so he came and was born of Mary. He lived a sinless blameless, innocent life. Even Pilate knew this. He did die. The Romans were very good at that. They were experts at that. And according to the testimony of the first believers, he also rose again. And so we join today with them and all the others around the world this morning in our affirmation that Christ is risen. He is risen indeed. And so the main point so far in the series, in this season of Daniel, the main point is this, and forgive me for being repetitious, but Daniel is repetitious, so I'm simply following the episodes. It's this one overarching, interwoven truth. Despite current circumstances, the way things look, the way things seem to be, the way I feel about the way things seem to be. Despite any of that, God is in control. No matter what the world says, no matter what nations say, no matter what the herd of life says or does, God is in control. And so in chapter 1, Daniel resolved to live a sanctified life in a pagan land, in a foreign land. And God blessed him. In chapter 2, we see a huge contest between the wisdom of God 
and the wisdom of man. God wins, by the way. In chapter 3, we see the courage of three friends of Daniel's and a fourth man that joins them. In chapter 4, Daniel is faithful to bring a message of judgment to a prideful king. And then in chapter 5, Daniel interprets that writing on the wall. And in all of these, Yahweh is praised. It's crazy. Yahweh, the God of Daniel, as he's called. That that guy that has the spirit of the gods living in him. They know he's spirit-filled. They don't know what to call it. These pagan kings are worshiping, if only for a moment. If only by decree, for a moment, they worship the living God. Not one made with hands, but rather the living God. And so the summary of Daniel's career is quite breathtaking, really. I mean, this guy was in high levels of politics when there were monarchies. You know, easily could have lopped off your head. You know, you don't just get fired, you get killed. And he makes it through different regime changes. Even when the Medo-Persian alliance was made. And it says even at the end here of chapter 6, that he makes it all the way to the time of Cyrus. Who, if you know your biblical history, allows him to return again. So Daniel sort of spans and bridges the gap between when they are exiled and from when they return. And what Daniel shows us is this. The people of God remained faithful. Even in exile. Even living in a foreign land. And quite frankly, there are some similarities between chapter 3 and 6. One of which is in chapter 3... The Hebrew, his three friends are there, but Daniel's not. Now, Daniel's here, but the three friends, we don't know where they are. But they both obey God. One of them is obedient because they are asked to do something that they can't do. The other's just simply being faithful and he gets accused of something he's already doing. Dana Fuel from Drew University says, We have seen the Hebrew sage, speaking of Daniel, climb the political ladder. You know, it's, it's, it's an interesting journey if you haven't read it. From captive prisoner to initiate, uh, initiate it, and then to a sage, and then to chief sage, then to administrator over the province of Babylon, then to the king's very personal advisor in chapter 4, And then finally, the third ruler in the kingdom in chapter 5. And then the prime minister that the king himself intends in chapter 6 to raise and give rulership over the whole kingdom. And then in chapter 6 at the end, does get rulership after his enemies are destroyed. And so in this story, it starts out very simply with, again... Daniel doing something faithful, which is praying. He's already doing this. He doesn't do it as opposed to something, but rather he's 
three times a day praying and facing Jerusalem. Uh, he has some people, because he's rising the ranks, if you will, and he's a slave, he's an exile, he has some people that don't like him, some enemies of his. And they devise a plan to destroy him, but they cannot find anything wrong with him. So they have to make up something. And they have to make up a law that then will find him guilty of actually doing what he's already been doing. And the king, unbeknownst to him, he's not even thinking in this direction, signs this thing. And interestingly, in Daniel 6, something crazy happens. And that is, when the king learns that Daniel has disobeyed this command, he doesn't, you know, do what you think he does. All right, we'll put him in there. Instead, he tries to fight for Daniel. He actually tries to save Daniel. It says he spent the entire rest of the day trying to save. Here's a pagan king trying to save one of God's chosen people in a foreign land. Isn't it a little bit reminiscent of Pontius Pilate trying to let Jesus go free? I whipped him. Here he is. Is this not enough for you? I didn't find anything guilty in him. Daniel 6 shows an elderly Hebrew practicing the daily disciplines of a life given to God. In chapter 3, they don't give in to temptation. And in chapter 6, Daniel is still practicing the faith. And you know what? I think that's a message for us. In a foreign land, as America continues to seem foreign to some people now, not because of nationalities moving in, but because of our movement away from morals and the pressure to conform to the herd. I think we also must not give in and must continue the daily practices of a life given over to God. We must keep the charge that Jesus has given to us. And these boys, now Daniel, an older man, is willing to give his life to continue to be faithful to Jesus, to God. So you say, what do we really learn from Daniel 6 then that has anything to do with the resurrection? Well, there's great injustice done with Daniel and with Jesus. Jesus was innocent. Even... Pilate finds him to be innocent upon questioning him. Even charges had to be made up concerning Jesus. False charges. He was innocent. And the innocent do, in fact, suffer in our world. There is great injustice in our world, even today. Daniel knows it very well. Jesus knows it very well. But also, you have here, fascinatingly enough, a pagan unbeliever fighting for the innocent. What are how many times in the church that we fight for the innocent? I mean, that's why we've got a whole table back there set up for Choose Life of Huntsville. They're fighting for the innocent. Who's more innocent than a baby in a womb trying to grow and be a human. They don't have a voice, and we must be their voice. 
You say, that's, that's sort of offensive. Isn't it offensive to the baby and the child as well? Christ's life began. You just repeated it yourself, whether you believe it or not, at conception. He was conceived by the Holy Spirit. Not just born of the Virgin Mary. That's not where his human life began. But it began when he was conceived by the Holy Spirit. And even today, my dear friends, we must stand up for those who don't have a voice. Maybe it is the immigrant. Maybe it is the unborn. Maybe it's the co-worker at your job making it a little more personal, that gets treated unfairly. And I've been one of those voices, I'll be first to admit, to cast judgment upon others, to have in my heart wrong thoughts about our brothers and sisters. God, forgive us. God, give us your heart a heart that was willing to go to the cross for people that hated you, misunderstood you. Well, the herd prevails. I get that term herd from E. Stanley Jones who talks about the masses of people being like a herd. You've seen these herds before like on the National Geographic or Discovery Channel, what you know, these wildebeest, they're all moving, one cuts off to the right, and everybody cuts off to the right. You know what I mean? It's like, wow, that's that's the herd mentality. Hey, everybody's doing it. I guess it's the safe way. Oh, there's a big crocodile. Not so safe, huh? He's saying, Gotcha. <laughs> um, the herd is not a safe place in the Bible. If you read through the gospels, the multitudes are almost always get it wrong. It's in small groups of people with Jesus that are close to Jesus. They even get it wrong some, but they are able to be corrected, not following the herd. And the herd in this story wins out, just like it did with Jesus. Hosanna in the highest to crucify Him, crucify Him, And yet, the ultimate test still remains. For Daniel, he's already been freed from several tests. So is his friends. They've been greatly delivered, miraculously delivered. And sometimes when I'm reading Daniel, I think, man, that's, that's really awesome. I wish that would happen more often. Because isn't it the case in your life, as in mine, that the majority of times... It's the even if. He doesn't deliver us, we'll still praise Him. And in fact, people are not delivered. People die. You say, how do you reconcile that? Because it seems like Daniel, God saves him every time. He doesn't have to have the even if part. But isn't Jesus the greatest example of the even if? Even if you slay me, I'll praise you. Job said that. 
He also said this, I believe that one day the Redeemer will stand upon the earth. And he has. And he did. And this Redeemer, though, although he could have been miraculously saved, he could have called legions of angels that I know, if we were able to see them, were sharpening their blades, loading up their magazines, making sure their bombs were ready and GPS systems on point. And they never were called. He could have been saved, and he chose to die. It was the greatest injustice in all the world. The world has ever seen God died. Jesus gave up his spirit and his breath. See, Daniel in the lion's den, an angel comes and closes the mouth of the lions. He doesn't get eaten. Maybe he slept on one. I wouldn't have. <laughs> you know, if they, even though they weren't eating me, I'd probably just stood as still as I could be, you know what I mean? Like, I don't think they see me, you know? We learned that they could see, in fact. They weren't blind because afterward, this is the part that doesn't make it into the children's stories, uh, the people who accused him of this, them and their families were thrown in and torn apart, all their bones broken, the scripture says, before they ever hit the floor. So it wasn't that they weren't hungry, wasn't that they were blind or couldn't eat, but instead an angel came and saved them. But no angel saved Jesus. He died upon the tree at the hands of the Romans by the will of the Jews. But that's not the end of the story, is it? Instead, he rose again because death is no match for Christ, for life. Any more than darkness is a match for light. It's not even a match. Death bit off a bit too much and died. For that's what the scriptures proclaim is the miracle, is that death is dead now. The enemy that roars about like a lion doesn't have any teeth. He just roars. He can do nothing to those who believe. He has no power over Christians because of Christ. And so Daniel is thrown into the lion's den. A stone is shut on him and is sealed over him. And Jesus too is crucified by the Romans and placed in a tomb and shut up with a stone. But God, right? But God rescues him and does not leave him helpless. You see, in this, in this mid-season finale, the rock is moved in Daniel 6. And it is a foretaste of when the rock is finally removed and the tomb of death is now opened so that even though we die, we might live, the Scripture says. That's good news, my friend, because I don't know if you've gotten the memo or not, but we're all going to die. 
I don't know if anybody's told you that lately, but we're all going to die. And yet, we can live. You see, I said this was the mid-season finale, if you will. Because this is not the end. It's not the end of Daniel. He's still got six more chapters to go. And it's not the end of the good news, notice this, when Jesus steps out of that tomb. (laughs) Because he actually tells his disciples to wait. Wait on the promise of the Father. I love this quote by Sir Winston Churchill. He said, now this is not the end. It is not even the beginning of the end. But it is perhaps the end of the beginning. And this is where we stand. Because the reality is, the end has started. But we're not done to the end when the credits stop yet. There's still time to repent and believe. Not in a fairy tale, but in the living God. The one that raised Jesus from the dead. The resurrected Lord who sends His Spirit to rattle our bones. We do not have life on our own. Our natural state is slavery. To be spiritually blind and deaf and dead. Sealed in a tomb of our own making. But through an earthquake of God's grace in Christ, we are awakened. Empowered to repent. To turn from our darkness and move to the light. The door's open. Christ is the door. And through faith in Jesus, God justifies us. He frees us, erases our debt, declares us righteous, and saves us and gives us eternal life. He fills us with the Spirit, His very Spirit. The same Spirit that was in Christ Jesus. And we are set apart, made separate and sanctified by His Holy Spirit in a new community in His body. Him being our head. And God gives us all of Himself in that moment. And many of you have experienced that moment of justifying grace. We receive all of His promises, all of His grace. They're all ours in Christ. But we come to find out that we have very little room for the Spirit. We've made too much room for ourselves. We've lived in Egypt way too long. And Egypt is ingrained in our nature. We learn that we can't receive the promises of God fully, not because He doesn't want to give them, but because we deny His grace and misuse our freedom. We only know the ways of the Egyptians. We've been in a foreign land way too long. And we began making idols, even after we've been justified, calling them Yahweh, just as the children of Israel did. We fashioned them with our own hands, maintained control of them. We're out of Egypt, but Egypt is not out of us, and we long for the comfort, interestingly, of slavery and of our sealed 
tomb. But we must be set free, brothers and sisters. Free in the Spirit. Filled with God's Spirit. By dying to ourself. The cross is the only way out. The only way forward. The door is open. The tomb is cracked. We must walk out. And when we do, we do it the same way as when we were justified. Through faith in Jesus, God can sanctify you entirely. The old man dies. Egypt is expunged. We're cleansed by the power of God's Holy Spirit, not just with water, but baptized with the Holy Spirit and fire. There is the flame of love that burns in our hearts, that burns our tongue, just as it did Isaiah. Amidst a generation of perversity, He fills us again with His Spirit, that same Spirit. But now we have more capacity for God because we've emptied ourselves out to Him. And now that our life is hidden in His, now that it is no longer I who live, but Christ in me, we receive more of His graces, His gifts, His promises. Oh, what a salvation. Oh, what a Savior. He is risen today. He is risen indeed. He is alive. Death has died. Christ lives. It's time for your tomb to quake with His power. And it is all yours in Christ. Not in your own power. Lay down your life. Surrender your life for the fullness of God. Do not delay. Whether you're young as Daniel was when we began, or old as Daniel is at the mid-season finale, turn your life to God. He's the only one that can save from the last enemy, death. It doesn't have to be your enemy today. It can be the beginning of the end. And so today, if you find yourself, (laughs) you feel in your life in a den of lions, he can shut their mouth. Do you believe that? If you find yourself in a tomb today, sealed up in darkness... He can break it open. He can for you. It's not enough to believe it in your head. You must become, as those first witnesses did, a witness yourself to the risen Lord. It's not enough for me to believe, or others to believe, or your mom and dad to believe, or your grandparents to believe, or just for your children to believe. You must know for yourself that Christ is risen, that He is risen indeed, because He's risen in your heart. And it can be today by faith. Amen.